0: Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Wayne Paselli, the um, uh, the ground poobah, the president and founder, is normally with us. Uh, we have Marty Irby today and Scott Beckstead, whom I'll say a little bit more about in a moment. Marty always joins us to give us a legislative update. Marty, what the heck's going on in D.C. this week?
1: Well, the weather's a little bit dark and cloudy today, but that seems to be the trend in our nation's capital in 2021. But on the legislative front, things are really going well. The Big Cat Public Safety Act that would ban the ownership Of lions, tigers, panthers, leopards, cheetahs, and other large cats is really moving along great. We just got the new House Republican Conference Chairwoman, Elise Stefanik, to co-sponsor the bill. That is huge because in the previous Congress, the leadership in the House of Representatives on that side of the aisle opposed the bill. Um, We've never really had a House Republican Conference Chair that's been great on animal protection issues. Elise is a 9.5 out of 10 if she's not a 10 out of 10. So that's a big gain for us. I think we're going to see some action in the House on that bill moving soon. Got a couple of dozen co-sponsors in the U.S. Senate already moving, and we really feel good about that bill. Uh, One thing that has occurred this week that was really huge is there was a larger piece of legislation moving through the U.S. Senate that included the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act. And you might recall in the previous Congress, we passed that bill through the House didn't get any action past the committee in the U.S. Senate because of some opposition from Florida, those who are very close to those waters where there are a lot of sharks. So we're glad to see that's made it through the U.S. Senate. If the larger package makes it through the House, which I think it will, we're going to see our first law enacted in the Sharkman Sales Elimination Act. We also have a raft of other new legislation I've mentioned before, the Animal Cruelty Enforcement or ACE Act is the bill that would establish an animal cruelty crimes unit at the department of justice. And we are expecting that we will see introduction in the U S Senate by Senator Mike Braun from Indiana in the coming weeks, the house bill introduced by Joe Neguse from Colorado has about 30 co-sponsors really big, Elise Stefanik there co-sponsored that bill again. So I think we can get some action on the committee pretty soon on that front. Uh, We're making good progress with the kangaroo protection act And we just saw the introduction of the Greyhound Protection Act that would actually ban greyhound racing in the United States. There's only two tracks left, both in West Virginia. They passed legislation on the state level there uh, a couple of years ago. And then last year, the governor vetoed the bill. So this is really our only avenue forward to drive the message in the corporate sector and hopefully eliminate that across the board in the U.S. On the, the newer bills that we are first having introduced in this Congress, The FDA Modernization Act that would actually um, eliminate the requirement for animal testing to be done in the development of any drugs in the United States is really moving along. We got Vern Buchanan, a congressman from Florida, to introduce the bill. And we got a very important key member from Oklahoma, Tom Cole, to co-sponsor that legislation. Um, We think that it will save the drug companies a lot of money, and they always like that. And of course, it will save a lot of animal lives. So it's a common sense bill that cuts through red tape. And then the the newest bill that I think, you know, we really haven't talked a whole lot about, my, my colleague here today, Scott Beckstead, is an expert on it, is the Mink Act. Um, the trade in mink pelts has severely decreased over the past few years. The pelt prices have dropped dramatically. And most importantly, it's been discovered that minks are more susceptible to the transmission of COVID-19 than just about any other animal out there. So, the Mink Act should be introduced in the coming weeks by the chairwoman of the House Appropriations Committee, Rosa DeLauro. She's a terrific, ter- terrific advocate for the animals. And this would basically be a bill that would buy out the mink industry and halt mink production in the United States for the commercial purposes of pelts. That's huge. I mean, know that there are so many people that have long been against fur and fur coats. The state of California has a ban. So that's really a big thing. I think we, we have a good shot at getting something done there, working with the uh, USDA on that front as well. So uh, the most important thing and the biggest news that we have to share is I've had an idea for about seven years that I've been playing with after I worked in Congress for Congressman Ed Whitfield. We made an attempt years ago to get an anti horse uh provision included in the transportation bill, uh, bit off more than we could chew back then. And the parliamentarian told me that if we had just tried to ban the transport of horses instead of slaughter itself, we might have gotten it in. So a new congressman that was just sworn in from Louisiana, Troy Carter, terrific Democrat, amazing man, just been in Congress a few weeks, like I said, introduced an amendment that we conceived this week to ban the transport of horses for the purposes of slaughter for human consumption across state and federal lines. We had a hearing in the committee committee. Yesterday, chaired by Congressman Peter DeFazio from Oregon. Uh, we had two great co-sponsors, John Katko, a Republican from New York, Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Pennsylvania. And there was a little bit of discussion about some of the language. Uh, we failed to include the wild bor- the wild boroughs, and that was an oversight on my part. And a little bit of a discussion about the enforcement of the legislation. So we got a commitment from the chairman that if the sponsor would withdraw the amendment that he would do everything he could to help us get it in the manager's package when the bill comes to the floor in a few weeks. So we're going to get the language right. We're going to make sure that we include the burros, the donkeys, the mules, and every other equine that's out there. And I think that we actually have a real shot at stopping the transport of these horses across the United States, and more importantly, across the federal lines into Canada and Mexico, so that they will no longer be slaughtered. That'll probably be an even bigger gain than the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act that we got done in December. If this comes to fruition, we feel really, really good about it and appreciate all of the groups out there. We had 220 groups in a period of less than 24 hours that came together and endorsed this legislation, including PETA, including SPCA International, tons of wild horse groups, tons of animal advocacy groups and equine groups as well. So it's been a really great week in Congress. Uh, Of course, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but we're moving along. And then I'd just like to also add, as it's relevant to this topic we're going into today, that I hope folks will keep an eye out for the upcoming documentary, Wild Beauty, Mustang Spirit of the West. I've partnered with the director of Disney's Black Beauty film, Ashley Avis, in producing a documentary about the plight of the wild horses out on the range. So we're expecting that that might be out later this year and uh, have a lot of support for that as well. So we appreciate everything everyone's doing for the wild horses and and every other animal as well.
0: Great, Marty. Thanks, as always. Uh, just your your breadth of this and your activity and that of animal wellness action. Uh, really impressive. So thanks for sharing with us everything you have going on. And indeed, uh, wild horses are the subject of today's show. Uh, while horse slaughter does not currently occur on U.S. soil due to a de facto ban achieved through the appropriations process, more than 70,000 domestic and wild horses are shipped to Mexico and Canada each year to be slaughtered. For human consumption in those countries, as well as Europe, Asia, and other parts of the world. Of course, uh, horses are pretty much the national animal. They're revered and cherished in the U.S., and about 80 percent of Americans oppose the slaughter of horses for human consumption. Yet that transportation across uh, federal lines does continue, uh, and there are some perversions of the process that may surprise you. One of which we'll talk about is the fact that the U.S. government will will pay people a thousand dollars to adopt Uh, one of these wild horses and to take care of it in order to get it out of uh, federal uh, custodianship. And then uh, the people who receive this thousand dollars will turn around and sell the horse for slaughter and make even more money off the horse. Ostensibly, they take care of it, but in fact, they they monetize uh, the certain death of it. The New York Times recently uh, exposed that. Two guests here to talk with us today. One is Scott Betstead. Uh, he is an increasingly uh, well-known voice to our listeners. He's been on several shows and uh, he's he's smart and he, he adds a lot of value so I'm always glad to have uh, him And we also have Carol Walker. Uh, she is a wild horse photographer, artist, author and advocate and she was recently on the Tucker Carlson show. Carol, I'm, I'm glad you're here but I gotta I gotta say how was it being with Mr. Carlson?
2: He was actually very nice to me, and I did a little research after the show and found out he's a huge animal lover. So um I was really glad that he was willing to have me on and, and wanted to get the word out about what's happening to our wild horses.
0: So Carol, glad you're, glad you're with us. And I'm going to really turn a lot of the show over to Scott because he is so incredibly well-steeped in this issue, as is Carol, of course. Scott, what do, Ameri- what do these 80% of Americans, and what's wrong with the other 20%, but what what is up with the horses that should concern the 80% of people that are concerned about horse slaughter? Why are we slaughtering them? Where are they going? How can we stop it?
3: Well, thank you, Joseph. And I want to extend um, uh, a great deal of appreciation and gratitude to Carol, uh, not just for being willing to join uh, the podcast today, but also for her tireless work uh, for wild horses. So uh, as the New York times story that you mentioned uh, uh, revealed the Bureau of Land Management has an adoption program called the Adoption Incentive Program uh, that basically pays people uh, $1,000 a head to adopt a wild horse. They have to hold on to that horse for a, a required a period of time. And then, uh, and then uh, the BLM no longer has anything to do with it. So, what uh, some of these unscrupulous adopters are doing is they're getting paid by the BLM to adopt the animals, uh, holding on to them and then getting paid again uh, by taking them to slaughter. And it's obviously a a terrible abuse and exploitation of a deeply flawed uh, program set up by the Bureau of Land Management, which by the way, people like myself and Carol and and all the other wild horse advocates out there warned the BLM when they first rolled out this program that, hey, this is not a good idea. Uh, But the, the, um, the plight of the wild horses is uh, really, I think, rising in terms of, of public awareness, because the Bureau of Land Management has embarked on a policy of mass roundups uh, with helicopters of uh, herds across the, United, the western United States. Several uh, herds are being targeted. Um, I've been working a lot on the Anaki herd, which is a very uh, popular and iconic herd. Uh, in in Utah. That's a herd of 500 horses. The BLM wants to remove uh, 300 of them. Uh, Another very uh, well-known herd, the salt, uh, um, sorry, the Sandwash Basin horses of Colorado. That's a herd that Carol's very familiar with. Uh, Also a very iconic herd. They are going to be targeted and the BLM is going to remove uh, most of them. So basically, you know, this is all happening under a, a, a policy known as the path forward, uh, which was endorsed by the Humane Society of the United States and the ASPCA, who sat down with the cattlemen and, and said, uh, uh, let's put together a, a, a new way forward for wild horses and burros. And unfortunately, they completely locked out the wild horse advocacy community. Um, and uh, they didn't talk to the people like Carol, who are out there with their boots on the ground, doing the hard work of following these herds and monitoring them, and who understand uh, the issue better than anyone. So it's it's a terrible situation for our wild horses and burros. Just last week, the Centennial herd of burros, uh, a legacy herd uh, that's been around since you know the the gold rush, uh, completely eliminated completely every single jack, jenny, and foal rounded up by the BLM, by helicopter, and all of those animals are now languishing in barren, filthy BLM corrals. So it's a terrible situation, and the reason I wanted to bring Carol in is because she is so knowledgeable. She is someone that I look to uh, for accurate information about what's going on, especially with the herds in Wyoming. Uh, the BLM has targeted uh, five different herd management areas um, and are going to remove 3,555 wild horses, largely to benefit uh, the, uh, the cattle industry, the livestock industry, uh, but there are other players there as well, and I, I can certainly have um, uh, Carol talk about that. So, uh, so Carol, I, I don't want to take up any more time. I want to turn it over to you, but I, I think... Uh, what I'd like to do is um, let's uh, let's get your thoughts first sort of on what's happening in the bigger picture nationally with the BLM, and then let's dial in on these herds that you know so well, the herds in in Wyoming and and the Sandwash Basin herds in uh, in Colorado.
2: Uh, well, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. So this year, the Bureau of Land Management has targeted over 10,000 horses and burros. Uh, to be rounded up and removed and they are currently sending out requests for new holding facilities because they literally do not have enough room for these horses for all of these horses they want to round up I heard from a friend who went to the Wheatland Wyoming adoption that they had shipped all these horses from Nevada because they have completely run out of holding facilities in Nevada So there is a brand new facility in Wheatland, Wyoming, that's going to be able to hold 3,500 horses. And uh, it was horrifying to hear from my friend that they have these um, fences where the horses have to stick their necks through to get to their hay, which actually rubs and causes sores on the horses. And it's basically treating horses like cattle in a feedlot. And um, this is not how I want to see any wild horse treated, it is, the BLM is touting this as their new flagship facility, off-range corrals, woo And I, it, I just flinch every time I also hear them talk about, oh, the horses are sent to long-term pastures. No, they are not. They are building these um, feedlots now for the horses. And as I said, they don't even have enough room for all the horses they plan to remove this year. And the, um, the herds in Wyoming, so there are five herds in Wyoming. I'm call, we, We're referring to them as the checkerboard herds. So these herds um, have, in, in the 1880s, when they put the railroad through Wyoming, they sold off one-square-mile plots, every other plot, in a 20-mile-wide area uh, to fund the railroad and what happened was uh, there's so there's a checkerboard as we, as we call it of private and public land and there saltwells creek has the largest area of checkerboard 80% of that herd management area is checkerboard adobe town has the least there's only 40,000 of 500,000 acres um, and the Rock Springs grazing association has most of those livestock leases on the public land part and they own the private land So they basically have locked up the grazing on all of these areas. And it's, we're talking an area of almost 5 million acres. I mean, it's just staggering the size of these places. So in 2013, the Rock Springs Grazing Association decided they didn't want wild horses on the checkerboard anymore. In the 80s, they had made an agreement with wild horse advocates and the Rock Springs Grazing Association and the BLM that a certain amount of horses would be allowed on public and private lands because you can't fence one mile squares. So the entire, so this, there was an agreement made. The grazing association got mad because they said the BLM wasn't rounding up horses fast enough. So they decided they just wanted the horses all gone. So it has been one lawsuit after another. I have been a plaintiff on six lawsuits so far, trying to keep these horses in their lands on the checkerboard. And uh, it's a huge fight. And this is going to be the biggest roundup in history if it goes through. So we're talking about five different herds, Adobe town, Salt Wells Creek, uh, White Mountain, Great Divide Basin, and Little Colorado. And they wanna take you know, 80% of the horses. But the thing is they haven't even done a flyover count over these herds since 2019. And they're just making up numbers. I, you know, I confirmed with them, they haven't done a flyover since 2019. And they're just saying the horses uh, will increase their population by 20%. And they never, they never count horses dying. And there's no, there's no accounting for that fold deaths, We think sometimes can even go up to 30 or 40%. Um, So full survival rates, um, full death rates, excuse me. So just making up 20% increase is ridiculous. And what happens is they end up taking more horses than they should because they've made up these numbers. And that's exactly what happened last year in the red desert complex. They said they were going to remove 2,400 horses and they couldn't find that many horses and clearly the estimated number was way off. And so what happens is you end up with these herds that are supposed to be left at a certain level, and they're brought way below that level of number of horses.
3: And, you know, again, this is, this is happening across, uh, you know, across the Western United States. For, for listeners who may not know, Wild horses are protected by the Free Roaming Wild Horses and Burrows Act of 1971. It was a federal law passed unanimously by Congress and signed into law by President Nixon. And it specifically states that uh, wild horses and burrows are an important feature on our public lands and that they are to be protected from, you know, pursuit, harassment, being chased, and being killed, the legislation, the law, charges the Bureau of Land Management with implementing the law and with taking uh, over the care of these animals. And yet, here we are uh, having to protect these animals from the very agency that is supposed to be preserving them and protecting them. Uh, Carol, you know, one of the things that uh, that people may not know is that you know a lot of these herds have very distinctive characteristics. And one of the things that I I really love uh, about the Salt Wells uh, Creek is that so many of those horses have that big, heavy, massive build and the really unique, distinctive curly uh, coats. Uh, And yet, as far as I know, uh, the BLM still does not recognize them as being anything uh, distinctive or worth preserving.
2: That is correct. And they used to allow people to adopt um, the curlies as stallions but they don't do that anymore because there were people who were wanting to preserve the curlies and saltwells Creek and white mountain are the two herds in Wyoming that have curlys. and white mountain is of course, one of the herds that's under the gun as well. And, uh, they do recognize Iberian ancestry. So if the horse looks very Spanish, um, in Adobe town, they are wanting to preserve that kind of, bloodline and look of the horse. So they they do tend to say that we want to preserve that and and release at least enough of those horses to keep that going. But you're correct. They have no recognition of the curly as being at all rare or valuable or anything else.
0: You said something a minute ago, Scott, that, that I want to help our listeners understand who may not be quite as familiar as Western United States folks are regarding these wild horses. And I thought I heard you to say that these that these animals are on uh, public lands, and that the reason that there is so much energy toward removing them is that the cattle industry wants to let their cows graze there. I'm going to guess for free, uh, in order
3: to,
0: in order to supplement or to augment their bottom line. That's a cynical way of examining the issue. But am I anywhere close, Carol? You you yes uh, yeah.
2: We call them welfare ranchers because they are paying a $1.35 per cow calf, calf care to, to graze. And if you wanted to graze your, your cattle or your sheep on on private land, it would probably be closer to $20 instead of $1.35. And the Bureau of Land Management, we're losing millions of dollars each year because the grazing program loses money. It's a terrible idea. And it's not just cattle, it's sheep as well. The Rock Springs Grazing Association, which is the most powerful grazing association in the country. And that, that's in this area that this roundup is gonna be. They used to have primarily sheep, but now they have quite a few head, head of cattle. And um, yes, they are the main reason these horses are being moved out. There are other reasons. Um, there are, there's mining. There's now gonna be a proposed possible nuclear reactor. So there's a lot of things going on in Wyoming that are putting pressure on the horses, but the, the grazing association is number one.
0: So I, I imagine lobbyists up there with, with their well-funded campaigns, getting these legislators to, to cut them kind of a, a break with this, this roundup, the, these roundups. Um, and I, and I, you know, I sound naive when I say this, but that that's, that's appalling. How can that be?
2: I know I, it is appalling. And, and in my opinion, there should not be livestock grazing on any of the herd management areas for the wild horses. And what happens is the livestock grazing uh, associations, they blame any degradation on the range on the wild horses, which is absurd because you talk about, there's probably like eight, five or 8 million head of cattle and sheep grazing. And then you have um, you know 80 or 90,000 horses in the entire area They're not causing all the degradation.
3: And another good example of that is this uh, Anarchy herd in Utah, 500 horses, and the BLM wants to remove 300 of them because they say that they are uh, eating too much forage. And yet the BLM has approved that same herd management area set aside for horses for over 26,000 cattle and sheep. Uh, right. and so you know so you, you you've got this agency saying that there are too many uh, horses and yet at the same time it's allowing uh, grazing on the horses uh, herd management areas uh, in numbers that vastly outnumber uh, the wild horse population so this is you know it's an industry giveaway it's a it's an yes. industry giveaway to uh, to these uh, ranchers who, uh, who graze at taxpayer expense on our public lands? Let's describe to the the listeners what exactly happens during one of these roundups. How, tell tell us what you see when you're out there uh, watching this uh, take place.
0: And and Carol, before you do that, Marty, so polite, he raised his Zoom hand. So I, I'm I'm guessing he wants to touch on the topic of why the horses are being round up at all before we go there, Marty.
1: Yes, no, thank you, Carol, so much for everything. I just wanted to add something in about the grazing. We worked with a coalition of 70 other groups and sent a letter to Secretary Deb Holland back in April, I believe, that she has yet to respond to calling for basically the suspension of these grazing permits as they exist today. We got a lot of flack, of course, from the cattle farmers. But one of the interesting things that I thought that was brought up is, there are cattle farmers in the southeast who own their own farms, have their own land, and there are cattle ranchers in the western states who have these grazing permits. And several of the cattle farmers in the southeast brought up the point is, you know, it's a bit of a competition issue even for them because the western state ranchers have an unfair advantage with those cheap federal lands. Just something to think about, and I wanted to mention that letter as well. Hopefully we will hear from Secretary Holland. We followed up with another letter to the president of the United States with 90 groups talking about the roundups, but uh, we have been staying on top of it. And I also want to thank all of those groups out there that joined and led the effort in those letters.
0: You know, I watched every episode of Dallas and not once did I see Jr. send his cattle onto public lands. He, he had his own ranch, you know, so if Jr. could do it, why not these other people, Carol, <laughs> back, back, back to what Scott was asking you, what do these horses go through in the process of a roundup, really describe that for us so we can see it and feel it.
2: So the first thing I need to tell you is that being an observer at a roundup has become very complicated since 2010. The BLM has decided they really, really don't want the public there at all. And so they make it very difficult. Last year, they let some people know about upcoming roundups three days before they started. So they try to keep it as secret as they can when it's going to happen. And then you have to sign up with a public information officer to be on a list to be notified when you can go out to the roundup. And you have to be, you have to go in a line of cars. You have to have your own vehicle. You have to go out there and stay the whole day. And uh, they put you a mile to three miles away from the trap. They really don't want you to see anything. They don't want you to see horses getting hurt, horses getting killed. They don't want you to have pictures of basically anything. So what happens to the horses? The coutures are the ones who are doing, they have been doing roundups since um, 1969. And they now are using two helicopters at a time to herd uh, groups of horses. You're basically, with a helicopter, you're scaring a horse into running away. The horse is a prey animal. They're terrified by these big things that make all this noise and they're running for their lives and they're being chased into a trap. And then they have this horse that they call a Judas horse. This horse is trained to run to the trap. So horses will tend to follow other horses. So they see this horse running into the trap and so they follow it. And the whole There'll be a bunch of horses going into the trap and they immediately separate mares from stallions, mares from their foals. And sometimes the horses run into the panels, break their necks, break their legs. It's a horrendous sight to see. And sometimes you'll have horses that are very smart and they've probably been through this before and they won't go into the trap. And I've seen horses chased for two hours, sweating, exhausted. And finally the BLM let them go. So this happens quite a bit. And um, it is a really horrendous thing to see. It is animal cruelty, animal mistreatment on the highest scale. I would never treat my own horse like that. I would never chase them with a helicopter. Most people would never even dream of chasing their horses with a vehicle or a helicopter. And then, um, the horses are taken, they're, they're chased into, um, the big semi-trailers and taken to, um, either temporary or, um, short-term holding to be processed. And they never see their family again. They never see their home again. And, um... It's the saddest thing you can imagine witnessing. And after spending, um, I think I spent three weeks last year out there at the Red Desert Complex Roundup, I was a wreck for a couple of months because it's just so emotionally draining to see it, even though your view is terrible. Um, Usually at the end of the day, they will let you go walk around the corral um, where the horses are, but there's big um, fencing along the sides that keeps you really from seeing much and they keep you pretty far away from the horses. So it's really hard to gauge their condition. I mean, you can see if, if there's a horse obviously bleeding, you know, that, that you can see that part of the pen, but you really have a hard time gauging how the horses are doing.
0: Now, Carol, you, you use the word process. That sounds awfully antiseptic. In yes. some ways, that's this is when the real horror begins. Am I correct? Yeah.
2: Horses and holding horses and holding facilities, it's very grim. They um they brand they freeze brand them, they put a tag on their neck, they give them shots, they geld them the, the stallions, and um, and then they're ready for either being sent to adoptions or transported to, to adoptions or transported to long-term holding. And seeing those horses, when you see them in these holding facilities, a lot of them have just given up. I mean, they just have this empty look in their eyes. Uh, they're standing around in these pens where once they were with their families, you know, some of these stallions and mares have been together for a decade. Um, the, the mares are separated from their babies. The, so I, have, I have been there when they were like two and three month old foals crying for their mothers. And it's a horrible thing. There's no reason to separate baby horses from their, from their mothers. I mean, it's just wrong. And, but, it, but that's what happens. And um, the horses, a lot of horses die in the holding facilities. We got a Freedom of Information Act on the Red Desert Complex just two months after it happened. And over 24 horses had died. I am waiting on a Freedom of Information Act since then for I've been waiting for three months and the BLM is not complying on giving the information. Um, usually by this time, probably over a hundred horses would have died. So um, they break their necks, they, get, they die from being gelded. They die from uh, foaling. Um, sometimes the foals are trampled if the mares are too close together when the babies are born in the holding facilities. So it's a, it's a really grim, it's a grim way to treat um, these, these beautiful, amazing animals that really deserve to be living free on our public lands.
0: Marty, does any of the legislation you have described uh, in your update address this sufficiently?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, there is a lot of legislation out there. One of the bills that we didn't mention today earlier that we've talked about in the past is a bill called the Rome Act, the Restoring Our American Mustangs it's a work in progress. It's a bill that we are reviving from about a decade ago and not quite the same as what it once was, but we have been working with a coalition of folks. I definitely will take these comments that Carol has provided and would love to get some more in writing because we have it in a drafting stage. And I think that we could work together on that. So there's nothing right now I think that clearly addresses that, but I think we have something in, in the works that we could adjust to make Uh, Make this a priority,
3: Scott. What else do we need to know about this issue? So there was uh, a a a big roundup last uh, last year in Wyoming that Carol observed, and you know one of the most alarming facts about that roundup is that the BLM has essentially denied access to the public. I I, and I don't know. I know that that uh, the BLM Carol has. Uh, Has uh, used COVID as an excuse to deny the public uh, an opportunity to observe and and see the wild horses. But uh, when you told me that uh, that no one has seen those horses, those like twelve hundred animals that were rounded up in Wyoming last year, I was very alarmed. So uh, why don't you talk about that? And do you have any news to report about those?
2: Sure. So. There were 1,969 horses removed last year in the Red Desert Complex Roundup, which I was just talking about. And about 700 of them went to Rock Springs to the short-term holding facility there. And they actually had an adoption there. Their first adoption March 17th, 18th around there. And they allowed the public in, they didn't allow the public to see all the horses in the facility, but they allowed them to see the horses that were being adopted. And then you could schedule private appointments to see all the horses in the facility. So that's pretty normal. I mean, well, the limiting people to not see the whole, all of the horses during the adoption was ridiculous, but it's pretty normal in rock Springs that that's about the time of year where they would allow the horses to be adopted. Now 1200 of the horses were sent to Canyon city, Colorado. And I got excited because it's closer to me. And, um, in the past they would have adoption events twice a month there, um, it's at a prison. So you would have to like give your driver's license, you know, and they would check you out to make sure you're not a criminal before you go down there. And, but they would allow you to in and to see the whole facility. And the facility is huge. It's on, um, I think it's on like 10 or 20 acres and there are tons of pens and there can be 3000 horses in that facility. So, but then in November, when I was applying to, for, for adoption, I was doing the applications and everything. They said, no, we're not going to have events at the facility. We can't do anything right now. We're closed because of COVID. We're locked down. The prisoners usually feed the horses and take care of the horses. They're locked down in their cells. We've had to have BLM come in from different parts of the country to help. And we'll be doing um, some adoptions later in the year. Now, normally, after a roundup, Canyon City would have the horses processed, ready to go by January. Now, (laughs) we've only had 39 horses out of the 1,200 were put on online adoption. No one has been allowed into the facility to see the horses at all. I can't even tell you how many times I have begged and pleaded. And uh, they are finally going to have an adoption next week that they're bringing 59 horses from the Red Desert to, And 10 horses, nine horses from Sandwash. This is, and we were not allowed to request horses. They're going to bring older horses and there's no scheduling of any other events coming up. And they are still refusing to let us into the facility. COVID excuse does not work, I'm sorry. Colorado has been open up since April. And I think it's just uh, a matter of the BLM exerting control. And I fear for the horses there because as I said, my freedom of information act about the horses, the number of horses, the deaths, everything else that's, they haven't responded to it. So you have to wonder what has happened to these horses. And also you don't have, you had, you didn't have the prisoners caring for them. Okay. So, Did that mean that the care wasn't as good during this time period? We don't know. We have no way of knowing. I have contacted my governor. I have contacted Joe Nagusa's office, my congressman. I have contacted um, the deputy director of the BLM. I have (laughs) contacted the, um, the DC office of the BLM. I have contacted Deborah Holland seven times, Joe Biden seven times. And I have done everything I can to try to get in to see these horses, and I have not had any
3: luck. That I would crazy. just add here that I, you know, I mean, I think that part of the part of the dynamic is, um, you know, the, the the BLM does not want to foster public appreciation for these horses. They they obviously they would prefer if people just forget that there are wild horses, and um, uh, but but when the public responds. Uh, in support of horses and in opposition to the roundups, you know, the BLM takes a very contemptuous attitude. It, it, it scoffs at the notion that, anim- that uh, the wild horses have families. Um, it dismisses the concerns of the advocacy community. It dismisses the concerns of rank and file Americans who want to see these animals living wild and free. Instead, you know they take their marching orders from the beef industry uh, and and from the other industries that use these public lands um, and uh, just you know the overall I think the overall mentality um, within the culture within the BLM is overall very hostile toward uh, the wild horses themselves but also very hostile toward the public who supports those wild horses and I think that that is manifest in you know, uh, the kind of, of uh, thing that, that Carol's been dealing with just in trying to get answers uh, as to what's going on with the horses that were removed and-, uh, and uh, or, or,
2: or also to have particular horses. The BLM doesn't want to admit that horses are individuals and people actually might have an affinity for a particular animal or might want to reunite a family or might, want, or might care about a certain horse and want it. They don't want people to have particular horses. They just want to give us the horses that they have and treat them as interchangeable um, cogs. And and it, it pisses them off when we talk about families. They don't like to hear about that. They don't want to hear about that because if you had to admit that the horses had emotions, that horses have feelings, that horses care about each other, then what they're doing is even more cruel and more
0: atrocious. And we've not even in this episode been able to touch on the horses that do end up on trucks for slaughter, what that journey is like for them, what happens when they arrive at their final destination. Uh, And um, I don't think it's too difficult to imagine that if the roundups are that bad, that what happens to those who do end up so destined um, is, is even worse. Um, What can listeners uh, to this podcast uh, do? Carol, to, to help you, Scott, to help animal wellness action. Let's end on some positive uh, action items.
2: Sure. Well, right now they're considering the budget for 2020, 2022, excuse me. So the BLM operates on this uh, budget from October 1 to October 1. So the what's going to happen as far as roundups and all that uh, for next year Um, the Biden administration had requested a $35 million increase in the budget for roundups. So we need to squash that. So the, the most important thing I think right now is for people to contact their congressmen and, you know, their, their senators and representatives and say, we do not want this. We want horses while our wild horses managed on our public lands, humanely, and we want to stop the roundups and have and work on a new plan for managing the horses. That's what we need right now.
0: Scott, what would that new plan look like, right? What's the alternative? Um, how do we avoid roundups uh, if we're going to get them off the lands? What's a better way to do it?
3: First of all, the very concept of a minimum number, of wild horses or a maximum number of wild horses on a on a particular herd management area needs to be completely revisited i mean the the, the so what we're talking about is a, a number called the appropriate management level or AML and that is the arbitrary number that was uh, that is designated by the Bureau of Land Management for each herd management area it's not based on science it's not based on anything other than what the livestock industry is willing to live with in terms of wild horses uh, out there on, on the rangeland. So first and foremost, you know, we need to create pressure on the BLM, probably through Congress, uh, to um, to revisit uh, the 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 entire management paradigm that the BLM uses. It's a, you know, it's 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 governed by a, a cowboy mentality that, as Carol said. Uh, completely denies the individuality of these animals and also uh, has nothing but contempt for the love that the American people have for these animals. Um, And so, uh, you know, I mean, for for herds where there is an actual legitimate threat uh, to the health of the horses themselves or to the the ecosystem, uh, there is fertility control. Uh, The BLM uses fertility control on some herds but it has yet to fully embrace fertility control as a population uh, control measure, and instead relies on the helicopters as their primary management tool. So what we need is we need, uh, we need public pressure uh, from every possible angle and at every possible level. Uh, and, and that means uh, you know reaching out to the BLM itself, but also uh, making those calls to Secretary of Interior Deb Holland. Uh, your members of Congress, both of your United States senators, as well as your United States representative, uh, get on a first name basis with their staff that work on wild horse policy. Call in, um, you know, and, and make your voices heard and, uh, and advocate uh, for the horses to be managed humanely on the range. And instead of removing wild horses, let's look at the impact of livestock grazing and get rid of the cattle and sheep off of those areas that are designated for the wild horses.
0: All right. Gosh, Scott, Carol, thank you so much. Marty, to make sure I get in your contractually obligated amount of airtime, any final words, sir?
1: Well, thank you, Joe. No, Carol, it has been so terrific to have you on. I have learned so much from you. I learn every time I listen to you. You did a great job on Tucker Carlson. We're just fortunate and thankful to have you and appreciate all of your great work.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, and and Carol, you were a great addition to the show, so I'm glad you joined us. And Scott, it was good to have you on again. And I want to say thank you uh, to our listeners for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.